Okay, so these first couple of days, um, I was talking this morning about the samadhi, and the focus in the practice, the priority in the practice, is the first couple of days, is is the samadhi, as we talked about. It's just really letting that, you know, non-linear in a non-linear way deepen and collect, and that's the priority. And then after that, it will be more, as I said, fifty-fifty. However, I'm going to begin talking about emptiness tonight, and. Uh, continue from there in, in the talks and, and the teachings. And so some of what I say tonight, uh, I will be, part of the talk, will be throwing out ways of working meditatively, but also off the cushion. So there's some stuff here already that you uh, may find very relevant and ho- hopefully very useful in terms of emptiness and contemplations and ways of looking, and tomorrow night too. <clears throat> so this word emptiness... In English, uh, for most people, it would probably have a connotation of bleakness, barrenness, empty. You know, uh, it doesn't sound very uh, enlivening or heartening un- unless you've been around these kind of uh, circles for a long time. Even then, sometimes not, as we said yesterday. But to realize emptiness, to realize the emptiness of things, is actually something wonderful. It brings a sense of wonderment. It actually brings joy. So that it may not always be that joy comes, but that's the direction that uh, the contemplation of emptiness is heading. It's heading in the direction of joy. Absolutely. Why? Why is it wonderful and joyful? Well, we live as human beings, and we take for granted the appearances of things. We take for granted a self, myself and yourself and his self and herself. And we take for granted the things of the world and the world itself. We take those appearances for granted and it seems, it absolutely seems, that things have their own kind of solidity. body, the clock, everything has its own solidity, its own kind of reality, its own sort of thatness, or sometimes people use the word suchness, it's just what it is. This thing is just what it is. It's what it is in its essence, in its being. Uh, that in some kind of independent way, it exists as what it is. And that much, to us, seems actually obvious. Six billion people would agree on that. Uh, it seems completely obvious. We, that's how we see the world, that's how we experience the world. But as we go into emptiness and meditating on emptiness and seeing, we begin to see that things are not actually as they seem to be. And that seeing that they're not as they seem to be brings freedom. It brings a freedom. We realize that we suffer because we uh, assent to and acquiesce to the appearance of solidity and independent reality in things, and even more than that, so we acquiesce and assent to it, that appearance, and even more than that, we actually make it so. We make things, without realizing it, we make things appear solid and real. So to the degree, to the depth, to the sort of comprehensiveness that we can realize the emptiness of things, to that degree, to that depth, to that comprehensiveness, freedom is available to us in life. They go completely hand in hand. That's 
why it's wonderful. That's why it's a joyful thing. And yesterday we were talking about the relationship with love. It also, again, just to say a little bit, has uh, a clear relationship with love, the realization of emptiness. So, put it very simply, have you noticed in your life, when I uh, trap myself, I bind myself, or I trap and bind another over rigidly in a kind of self-definition, I'm like this, I'm a failure, I'm a this, I'm a that, or I'm super fantastic, wonderful, and you, they, are like this. Do you notice how that uh, pr imprisoning ourselves and others in self-definition actually blocks and limits the flow of love? So we say, those the definition, I am this, you are that, I am like this, you are like that, over rigidly, we say, that's empty. And seeing the emptiness of it actually begins to liberate the flow of love. I'm saying that again uh, because there can be this doubt that emptiness leads to love. So that's one very simple aspect. So emptiness is really not depressing. It's not something depressing. I doubt you would have signed up for the course if you thought it was completely <laughs> depressing. But like I said, most people, there's some ambivalence there. There's really some ambivalence. We're not totally sure yet. It's also not disappointing, and some, sometimes people teach emptiness as a kind of is a teaching of disappointment. And again, I I, I would really really uh, d differ with that. It might be disappointing for the ego, the small kind of ego mind, but in its fullness, in its depth, there's nothing disappointing about emptiness at all. At all, it's quite the opposite. Nagarjuna is one of the great great Buddhist teachers from. Um, or 500 years after the Buddha, probably the second most important teacher after the Buddha. When you see emptiness, you realize that the true nature of all things is peace. The true nature of things is peace. <clears throat> There's a Tibetan uh, Dzogchen teacher, Dilgo Khyentse Rinpoche. He died, I think, in the 90s, but I could be wrong. Uh, he said, when you recognize the empty nature of phenomena, the energy to bring about the good of others dawns uncontrived and effortless. Again, there's a, there's a key here with, between emptiness and love and our capacity to love and our capacity to give. So we could say, and I think it's right to say, that among the tools we have as meditators and as human beings for dealing with our difficulties and dealing with the existential fact of our existence, the most deep tool we have, the most powerful tool we have, is the contemplation of emptiness. Now, it might not be that immediately, but eventually it becomes the most powerful tool. But it's important to see it, and to see this retreat in context, that it's one tool among many. As we have metta, we have practice of generosity, we have mindfulness and bare attention, we have psychotherapy, we have talking with a friend, we have a million things as human beings. But uh, emptiness is one of those tools, contemplation, and it's, and it's the most powerful tool. So what is emptiness? What does it mean? I mean, I said a little bit about it. We go, let's go into it a bit more. Emptiness, first of all, is not a thing. It's not a thing. That's quite important. Emptiness is not a thing. It's also not a state. It's not a state of consciousness or a state of mind. Emptiness is not a state of mind. We can, perhaps, when we speak loosely, and you know, I and other teachers might go into it, speak of relative states of emptiness but actually we're being a little sloppy with our language when, when we do that. So emptiness is actually not a state, 
nor is it space or a space, a space of consciousness or any other kind of space. Okay? So it's not a thing, it's not a state, and it's not space. What actually is emptiness? Better to say emptiness is an adjective. Better to say emptiness is an adjective. And what we talk about is this thing, whatever this thing is, a self or a cushion or a emotion or whatever, we say it's empty. It's empty. And that's more accurate. So emptiness is an adjective that goes with things and phenomena and selves. Empty of what, though? We say in technical language, empty of inherent existence. Now, that's a very important word. I'm going to explain what that means. It has a lot of synonyms. So, inherent existence, substantial existence, self-existence, um, intrinsic existence. Am I missing any? True nature, thank you. True nature, true existence. Uh, sometimes people... Say again. Essence. Essence, yes, thank you. I'll go into these, yes. Essence. Sometimes people miss the true out. So this is important. Sometimes when you read text, you see this thing has no existence. This thing has no nature. This thing has no reality. You have to insert the true there. Okay, I'll explain. Well, hopefully explain. I said a little bit before, it appears that this thing or that thing has a nature, and it has a nature of its own which exists from its own side. It is that thing by itself, from its own side. It doesn't need anything from me to be that. It, uh, we say, a, a chair has a kind of chairness over there in its in its own uh, nature. Somehow the chairness is residing in the object. You look at me and you say the Robness, and people, some people know me. You say, look at me. It's Rob. Of course it's Rob. Right over Pascal. Of course it's Pascal. The Pascalness is right there. It's in. It's it's <laughs> it's it's there. It's in the object somehow, and that seems completely self-evident, completely self-evident to us. It's residing in the object. It seems that things exist in their own right, we could say. They exist as they appear to us. Uh, they exist, we, again, we could say, in and of, an object exists in and of itself as what it is. And very importantly, it seems that things exist independently of the perceiving and the conceiving mind. It seems that things, or things of the world, exist independently of the perceiving and the conceiving mind. So we can picking up what uh, Pascal said. Things are then, actually, in actuality, things are, we say, without essence. And what's essence? Essence is this. Essence is, uh, another teacher describes, Chandrakirti says, a nature inhering in itself. Just other words for what we've just said. And to say that something's empty is to say it has no essence. It has no essence. It's not the way we feel and sense and perceive and think about the world. We can also say that although it's obvious that the clock is there and Rob is here and Pascal is there, when I actually look for these things and these selves, I cannot find them actually. So on one level it looks obvious. When I actually go looking deeply for them, I cannot find them. So one other angle on that is the unfindability of things. Now a theme I've already mentioned, we're going to return to many, many times. Having said all that, this is not a nihilistic philosophy. It's not going over the edge into nihilism. This is extremely important. 
as you know, teaching this stuff, I'm aware of treading a tightrope here. And sometimes when I teach, I lean this way a little bit, and sometimes that way, and different people get upset at different times. <laughs> We're going to go along to this. In Chinese Buddhism, they say, because they tend to lean a bit this way in Chinese Buddhism, and Indian Buddhism tends to lean a bit this way. Chinese Buddhism, they say, truly empty, hence unfathomable existence. Truly empty, hence unfathomable existence. It's a kind of saying something that's saying, hey, it's not nihilism. Or another, again from Chinese Buddhism, true emptiness equals wondrous being. True emptiness equals wondrous being. So, the Buddha, uh, someone was asking for quotes, I mean, uh, sources of uh, quotes. I have some and not others, so I hope that's okay. Sutta Nipata, verse 1, chapter 1. <laughs> the practitioner who knows with regard to the world, this is the Buddha speaking, the practitioner who knows with regard to the world that, quote, all this is unreal sloughs off, shakes off the near shore and the far shore. In other words, shakes off samsara and the world of duality, the world of even samsara and nirvana duality. Shakes off the near shore and far as a snake its decrepit old skin. The practitioner who knows that all this is unreal. So the Buddha talked about delusion and ignorance being the, f the fundamental uh, root cause of our, our dis-ease in life, our unnecessary suffering. Delusion and ignorance. What is that? Again, this is um, this is Nagarjuna, a text called Shunyata Saptati. To posit things arisen through causes and conditions as real is what the teacher, meaning the Buddha, calls ignorance. So this, this concept of ignorance, delusion, is actually very, very central to the Buddhist teaching, extremely important. What does it mean to, to, to what, what does delusion mean? What does it mean to say ignorant, deluded? It's not just, this is quite important, it's not just that we don't know that things don't have an essence. It's not just the sort of not knowing of their emptiness. Okay? It's not just a failure to know something is actually, delusion is actually an active mistaking. An actively mistaking of the fundamental nature of how things really are. We actively superimpose, of course unconsciously, we're not aware of this, we actively superimpose a concreteness, a solidity, an essence, an independent existence, etc., etc., on selves and things. And it actually seems that the world of things and selves exists independently. It seems that way to us. And we, as I said, accept, acquiesce, assent to, to the, the way that things seem. It takes a certain amount of insight to see that that's the problem. And I don't know. Uh, I'm not even, as I say, uh, as I say this now, I'm not, I'm not sure it's going to land in different places, whether it's obvious that that's really the problem. It, it may not be obvious. I, 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 I don't think it's obvious. I think it takes quite a lot of practice to see that that's actually the problem. That's the root problem. So we talk a lot, for instance, in, in the Dharma about impermanence. And for someone who's been practicing a little while, it, it begins to be a little bit obvious. If I cling to things that are changing and only going to disappear, hey, I'm going to suffer. 
And it takes a little practice, but that begins to dawn to someone. It's quite, it's relatively speaking, it's quite obvious. It's a much deeper thing to realize, a more subtle thing to realize that when I perceive something as inherently existing, I suffer and I cling to it. I don't think that's so obvious. Well, it may be or it may not be, I'm not sure. So there's a there's a story that was kicking around a few years ago, actually quite a few years ago if I remember, but um and I think it was concerning a monk in Sri Lanka, I don't know the monk, a Theravadin monk. And someone asked him, Why do we suffer? And uh this monk replied, Why do you suffer? He said, You suffer because ninety five percent of what you do, you do for yourself, and there isn't one. <laughs> Now, we're going to say something more than that, something more complete than that here on this retreat. We're going to say, because everything you do, think, believe, react to, suffer over, is based on believing in an independently existing world of outer and inner things, including the things that seem to make up myself. It's a bit more full. In the teachings, in the in the tradition, they talk about the two selflessnesses. Okay, so they're not actually different in any way, but it's just for uh, what's the word educational purposes. So this self, you say, look at Rob, and it's, there's Rob's self, there's Pascal's self, there's Tony's self, whatever. Uh, there's a self there, and we say that actually its actual nature is selfless. It's actually it's empty of, of a real self. But we also say that about alarm clocks, about um, emotions, about situations, that they seem, again, to have a self in the sense of this kind of essence and, and true nature that we were talking about before. They seem to have a self in that sense. So it's talking about a, a self having... Sorry, a phenomenon having a phenomenon having a self. It doesn't mean having a personality. It means having that true nature, etc. So there's two selflessnesses, one of persons and one of phenomena. Does that make sense? So, when I say phenomena, in this retreat, what we're going to get to is actually I'm including awareness. I'm including time. I'm including space. I'm including uh, quarks and protons and uh, boson-hadrons, or whatever they're called. and uh, All of that. All of that. Uh, selfless, lacking self-nature. So even the most fundamental building blocks, the most seemingly obvious facets of our existence, also lacking in self-nature. Now we need, uh, if we're interested in emptiness and in, in really to go into it deeply, we need to see the emptiness of phenomena as well. All phenomena. And in some traditions, in some schools of teaching, the personal selflessness gets emphasized more. As you see, the emptiness of self, and, and that gets kind of leaned on more. But what we're saying is, we don't fully understand that personal selflessness until we also really see the emptiness of phenomena, and the emptiness of the elements that seem to make up the self, what we call the aggregates, which we'll go into in, in more detail. So... Chandrakirti, we're going to get to him in quite a major way in uh, some time. He was 7th century uh, 
monk in India, in, uh, in Naland, a place called Nalanda, and he is uh, now considered one of the great, great teachers on, on emptiness and uh, other aspects too. Chandrakirti, uh, on his commentary on Nagarjuna's Yukti Shastika, if you're interested, uh, do you want to spell that? Does that mean it? Yeah, C H A N D R A K I R T I. Chandrakirti, very very famous and C H A N D R A K I R T I. Very very important teacher. Um, the abandonment of the afflictive emotions simply does not occur for those who may wish to abandon the afflictive emotions, but who still apprehend the inherent existence of forms and so forth. In other words, I might really want to be rid of suffering. I might really want to be rid of misery and this or that afflictive emotion. But, uh, and I might try this and I might try that, and all of it might help, but I can't cut it at the root, to borrow the Buddha's analogy, until I have seen the emptiness of all things. However, there's a problem here, and maybe you already, uh, you already sense it, I'm not sure. If this inherent existence, the appearance of inherent existence, is woven into the very way we experience things, if I see inherent existence and I sense it and I feel it when I'm listening to a sound, when I'm looking at something, even when my awareness is very simple and very basic, and we talk in, in the insight meditation tradition about bare attention and just being very simply and very directly with experience, but even that has woven into it a perception of inherent existence. How am I going to see through this illusion of inherent existence if it's woven into the very way I see all my experience? And I said yesterday night, I don't feel like just being with our experience, just being with moment to moment our experience is going to do it. Because my just being with has woven into it the sense of inherent existence of things. So we need to actively contemplate in a way that sees through the illusion of inherent existence. Actively kind of cut that illusion. Today I was talking with someone and reminded me to uh, bring something up. I don't want to go off on a side tangent here, but um, I regard there being different modes of insight meditation, so to speak. So one mode might be just paying attention to my experience, just being present, etc. And in that quietness and in that simplicity of being with my experience, one notices insights just pop up and I understand something about myself or about impermanence or maybe even about emptiness, etc. Uh, whatever it is, they just pop up by themselves in the simplicity, in the quietness, in the, in the simple presence, in the bare attention to things. And there's another mode, and that's a very important mode. There's another mode which has more to do with deliberately contemplating in a certain way to cut deeply, to probe more deeply. And on this retreat, that's, so they're both important, 
both completely important for, for the fullness of meditation. In this retreat, we're emphasizing a lot of the second one, actually deliberate ways of contemplating, deliberate ways of seeing to see deeply into emptiness. For Probably for most of you, not all, but probably for most of you, that will be unfamiliar and may feel a little uncomfortable, I don't know. Um, but we're leaning that way on this retreat. They're both important, but this retreat leans one way a little bit. Okay, so how are we going to see through? Well, that's what, obviously, the retreat is about, the how-to, and what it means and the how-to. But let's start, as I think I said, I think I said last night, some, I don't know, levels of understanding of emptiness are actually quite commonsensical. They're not far away uh, from us as human beings, from us as thoughtful and conscious human beings. We don't even have to meditate to to kind of pierce that level of reality. So, for instance, uh, you're in an argument with someone, or uh, something happens, and there's a lot of issue around, a lot of heat, a lot of uh, something that's a problem around. It might be not even involving another person, it might be just myself thinking about something, and obsessing about something, and thinking round and round about this thing about this situation or this uh, issue, whatever it is. And whether it's an argument or whether it's me obsessing about something, some time goes by. And later, later we think, what on earth was all that fuss about? What was all that about? And we see, with hindsight, how we just got got our knickers in a twist, basically. We just got into whole, some whole thing which didn't really have any reality. Partly, what practice is about is taking that time lag, which sometimes I think of myself, some things, it was years, years later I look back and I think, goodness me, <laughs> such a thing that sometimes took years to go through. And then years later I begin to see, what a lot of fuss that was all just... What we want is the time lag to get from years to months to minutes, seconds, until eventually, right there, in the moment, hopefully, not always. We had this phrase of making something. And often the mind gets into a relationship with it. It's making something. And often when it makes something, what it makes is a problem. It's making something. And we talked this morning about the hindrances and how the hindrances have these hooks metaphor. Hindrances have these hooks, and these hooks sink into things, and then they shake them up, and they make something. They make something. Or the way our, the thinking mind... The, the thinking mind, when it's unskillful, when it's unchecked, it ends up making something and making a problem. It's important to see this. It's really important. This is a level of emptiness. It's a level of emptiness. And there's a whole other level, again, that we don't particularly have to be meditators to inquire into and to realize. The whole level of social convention. So, uh, oftentimes we fall for, we believe... completely the conventions of the society that we move and exist in without questioning them. So, for example, I remember um, I remember being uh, being sent to quite a sort of, I don't know what the word is, um, academic, sort of pushy high school. And, and I had a lot of really great things about it. But there was a lot of emphasis there on how one did academically and what grades you got and what, uh, you know, were you in the A stream or the B stream and what university we went to and all this stuff. 
there's quite a lot of pressure, and it was it was something that a lot of people were preoccupied with. Um, but and I got felt like I very much got sucked into the suffering of that, and then it's occurring to me at certain points like. Does this actually have any inherent worth to it? So that kind of, you know, academic type intelligence, which is a lovely thing, but somehow it felt like that was being given a, a, an inherent worth. Whereas if we'd moved back, I don't know, ten or eleven thousand years, my calculus ability, you know, wouldn't have helped me in hunting the woolly woolly mammoth or whatever. And there, my prowess in the society would have been r- relative to that. It's completely relative, and and somehow in the believing we don't see the relativity of it, the cultural conditioning for it, and we we fall we fall for something. And the same thing with success and success in the world, and how it's often me- measured in in terms that are purely culturally ordained, culturally prescribed. So I'm thinking, you know, financial success, etc. And how that often gets respect, and I'm not saying it's good or bad or anything, but it's there's something that we're falling for there. It's dependent on a view. In other words, what we feel about this thing and the import, the seeming importance of this thing is dependent on a view. And in this case, right now, what we're talking is dependent on a culturally conditioned view. So this dependence on a view ends up being the most important thing in emptiness, and obviously I'm talking at a very you know, everyday level right now, but this dependence on view, dependence on a way of seeing, ends up being the most important thing. And if I don't see that, if I don't see, and as I did when I was uh, you know, in my early teens, if I don't see the relativity of this, I get pulled into something and I suffer more than I need to. And again, we're countries, countries are... Uh, uh, a human social convention, and and how much suffering in the history of humanity has been over believing in the inherent existence of a country, and in that country fighting this country or fighting about its borders. You know, look into a country is always first of all, a country is always in relationship to another country. If you have no countries, there can't there can't be one country and something else. Do you understand? So the country's always in relationship. It doesn't stand on its own. England does not stand on its own. Wales does not stand on its own. Israel, Palestine, these places, they don't stand on their own. Uh, that's one thing. But again, they are part of an agreement. For a country needs to be a country. It needs human, first of all, agreement. It needs to be a, it's a purely human agreement. And and it takes that agreement, and when there isn't that agreement, then there are the problems. There's the suffering, and there's war, and there's conflict. So a country, first of all, is in relationship to, does not stand on its own, and secondly, stands as a concept, um, gi- given its support by human agreement and convention. But again, if we again just staying on this everyday level, we talk talk a lot, and and again, as human beings, we we suffer a lot of around, at times, some of us, the notion of being in a relationship, usually a romantic relationship, or out of a romantic relationship. And that can be very charged as a sort of duality. I'm in one and I want to be out, or I'm out of one and I want to be in. And I know, I know people know both. 
But the whole concept is it gets built up. Again, this is a concept we're going to return to. The way the mind builds something. It gets built up as a thing, as a perception, as a reality. And when I look at what a relationship is, I see it has actually lots of holes in it. My relationship has lots of holes in it, and that's very natural. It has holes when I'm, in a way, not really in a relationship at that time. So right now I'm giving a Dharma talk, I'm not in my relationship. Uh, there are plenty of times when I'm not even thinking about my relationship. Uh, when I'm fast asleep, I'm, you know, I'm, you might be even dreaming about someone else. Uh, there are times in a relationship when we're actually, if we're honest as human beings, we're relating very, very poorly. We're not really relating very well at all. I mean, we call it a relationship. Uh, there are times as well, dimensions of a relationship, where we feel actually only parts of us are relating. And yet somehow with all of that, it gets such a solidity. And again, I also see, I have, we have as human beings, relationships to many people, to animals, many animals, to things, to events, to inner, outer things and events, all the time. And somehow, some particular kind of relationship is getting solidified, over-solidified sometimes. And again, if I don't see this, I will tend to suffer with the in and the out. And the whole notion of relationship ends up being uh, more and more solid, more and more either a prison or, or a kind of uh, something that I need to have. And of course, you know, this is where this balance comes in. We're not saying no commitment. You know, of course, commitment in a relationship is important. Of course, on one level there is a relationship. Of course there is. But the question is, am I stuck in ways of seeing Am I stuck in ways of seeing things? That ends up being the, the important question. Everything that I've just said about relationship, I could say in terms of roles, and the roles we get in, in terms of jobs, or parents, or children, or whatever it is. I'm, I'm the resident teacher at Guy House, and I live here. And if I walk around thinking, I'm the resident teacher, I'm the resident teacher, I'm the resident teacher, I'm going to create a complete nightmare for myself. It's too much. It's too much reality to give to something like that. <laughs> Believe me. <laughs> but the same with a retreat. And again, and uh, we say, where's the retreat here? Where's the retreat? And the first day, or first evening, you think, I'll tell you where the retreat is. It's in my, it's in my knees is where it is. <laughs> um, but aching knees? You can get aching knees any time. So to focus on the differences, we tend to focus on retreat life versus outside life. In a way, we're just some people who are kind of living together for four weeks. We focus on the differences and we build something called a retreat, and then we feel perhaps imprisoned by it or whatever. So my focusing on what's really that different? We meditate a bit, we walk around, we eat, we sleep, we go to the toilet. All of this stuff we do outside anyway can't actually find the difference if I look. Even meditation. If I'm sitting here meditating and actually I'm spacing out for X amount of time, is that meditating or not meditating? If I'm walking down the street in Newton Abbott and just organically, spontaneously by itself some mindfulness comes without effort, is that meditating or not meditating? Where is the meditation? Now, of course there's meditation, of course there's retreat, etc. But somehow we grasp onto it as having a reality that's too solid, too self-existent. 
Okay. <clears throat> so, I said before that actually simple mindfulness isn't enough, but we're actually going to start with simple mindfulness because it's a very powerful way in, and it's also, uh, for most people in here, it's also their background and, 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 and what you know. So there's something about this that I think is quite interesting. Sometimes when people start talking about emptiness and teaching emptiness, they start talking about chairs or tables, etc. And it's quite a philosophical investigation and can be great and, and wonderful. My experience uh, for myself and working with people is that it can be, it often is best to actually start the inquiry into emptiness right where we feel the suffering in our life, right where we feel the discontent. That's the best place to start. Why? Somehow the emptiness is actually easier to see there, funnily enough. And, of course, it also feels much more relevant than talking about does the chair ultimately exist or not. So, what do we notice when, as practitioners, we bring mindfulness to our experience? We bring that simple attention, simple openness to experience, and just seeing what we can learn. One of the things, and someone said this to me the other day, and some people regularly notice this, is that when there's a difficulty, either so-called inside or so-called outside, the attention tends to get sucked into that difficulty. The attention gets sucked into the difficulty, and then it feels like that it could be something difficult in the body, it could be a sense of tiredness, it could be a fear, it could be a situation. Uh, it could be that you walk into a room, and there's some kind of social situation, you think someone... Uh, has a problem with you, or there's something unresolved, and then how easily the attention gets sucked towards that person. What are they thinking? How are they looking at me? Trying to read what they say. The attention gets sucked into, very often, where the difficulty is. And in that, the difficulty then feels like it's taking up all the space. And the size, the felt size of the difficulty increases, and the felt solidity also. It feels very solid. So, as practitioners, first of all, we want to notice that that's going on. And then, is it possible to see space around this thing? So it could be space around some bodily discomfort, space around an emotion, space around a situation. Even in this room, when we arrived yesterday, and I think for everyone it felt like, gosh, it's a bit cozy in here, it's a bit cramped. We don't notice, actually, there's a lot of space in this room. There's more space than there is people. One can actually not get so sucked into the, what can feel like at times the problem of the people and the space, uh, the lack of space. Actually, there's, there's quite a lot of space in here. As we said before, uh, space is not emptiness. Emptiness does not mean space. It's rather that the mind gives solidity through the way we relate and see and conceive to something. Okay, so that's one possibility. Thrown out. It's very, very simple. Very simple aspect of mindfulness. Second, the mind likes to create abstractions and then uh, suffers with those abstractions. So, a little while ago, I was talking with someone, and this person said, "I've." I have no idea what I'm going to do with my life. And they were really, really in, in quite a state with it, really suffering quite. I have no idea what I'm going to do with my life. 
and uh, this situation was unknown. Work, work was unknown, and uh, living situation was, I'll be homeless. And a lot of fear, a lot of agitation, a lot of um, trembling, really. And not seeing how those two statements, I've no idea what I'm going to do with my life, and I'll be homeless, are actually gross abstractions. We've painted something, and painted it big and bold and abstract and solid, and then suffer with it. We've reacted to that very painting that we've created. So, it, when that's the case, and, and the mind does this, is it possible to actually question the ways that we're seeing something? So, in this case, we were talking, and it's like, actually, this, I don't know what I'm doing. First of all, it just applies to a job. You know, it doesn't apply, I'm going to get a cup of tea in five minutes, that's much as clear. Uh, it just applies to just an area of life, and actually, it's an opportunity, and I can see it as an opportunity, an opportunity to choose differently. This person was also thinking, well, I keep choosing jobs out of fear or out of X, X or whatever. I actually can see it, well, yeah, it's actually, I'm taking time as an opportunity. It's a different way of seeing something. And in that, I'm caring for myself. And yet the mind had got locked in to a whole other way, this abstracted way of seeing it. I've no idea what I'm going to do with my life. Locked into that and suffering with the solidity and the abstraction of it. And again, we went into, what does homeless mean to you? What does that mean, that word, what do you, when you jump to that? What does that mean? And, and again, does it mean that, you, that you're really going to end up on the street? Is that, is that what you really feel? And looked inside, no, actually, I don't really feel that's going to happen. So what does it mean? And looked and went into it a bit more, and actually what it meant, there was, the mind was, again, this is a whole other thing, going off into the future, spinning a reality, I will end up lonely in some bed, sit, bed and breakfast or something somewhere and be completely without friends. Just... So, can I question the ways of seeing? Can I see what's underneath this abstraction? Number one. Number two, can I be in the body with the emotion that's with what's going on? I'm just talking about simple mindfulness practice now. So, in this case, there was fear, there was sadness, there was actually a whole bunch of emotion there. But the, the mind was kind of bouncing off all that, was away from the heart center and the feeling of the emotion in the body. When this person was able to do that and come more, you know, working together, come, come more into the body and into the emotion and feel it and just hold it and be there with it and allow it to, to unfold and express itself, actually, guess what? began to soften. The actual emotion began to soften. The emotions began to soften. And in that softening of the body and the emotion, the views soften. The views, uh, the ways of seeing soften. They open up. And it became possible for them to see differently. Also, in being with the emotion, it's like they realize it's not just one emotion that they were running away from. There's actually lots of strands there. There's lots of strands. There was... Um, as I said, ang there, was, uh, there was actually anger, fear, sadness. I can't remember what else. There was, there was a bunch of different things. Beginning to see the strands there, they begin to reveal themselves and, 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 and we can feel them. And that tends to actually uh, decrease the sense of overwhelm and the sense of solidity of the whole thing.
And she says, oh, there's this and there's this. And the whole thing begins to lose. The whole texture, the whole experience or situation begins to seem less solid. So both together, questioning the ways of seeing and working with the emotions, and together they bring confidence in relationship to all this. In that case, what's empty? The abstraction was empty. The abstraction of the situation, we say, was empty. Empty of being real. Empty of uh, being that. That's what it was, that abstraction. So for an insight meditator, for someone whose prime modality is sort of simple mindfulness, we begin. something else begins to get obvious as, as we get more familiar with working with mindfulness. We begin to see that our experience that seemed so solid actually has lots of gaps in it. So, uh, this could be something inner, something going on in the body, it could be an emotion, it could be something outer. Actually, when I look at it, first, it seems solid. When I look more closely, what seems solid actually has lots and lots of gaps in it. When you were a child, did you, like like me, have those drawing books? They were called Dot to Dot. Yeah. Do you know? They have numbers and you follow the dots and then you get a picture of something. The mind does that with experience. It joins the dots. When I look carefully, what I, what I actually experience is the dots. Moments of this and moments of that. And I join those dots. So we might, for instance, like the weather wasn't great today, cold and rainy and a bit windy. And someone might say, well, it's terrible. When I actually go out into it and I, I look I really look at the experience with mindfulness. I really open to the experience with mindfulness. What I get is is gaps, certainly gaps in the terribleness of it. You know, there's maybe some coldness on the neck, and then maybe a raindrop falls, and you don't like it on the thing, and then nothing, and then actually the breeze feels a bit nice for a second, and then it gets a bit cold, and that's actually the nature of the experience, moment to moment. And the mind has come in too quickly, and joined all those dots together, kind of hurried through the ones that are the opposite, and created this terrible, terrible Devon English weather, or whatever it is. <laughs> the Americans are laughing. <laughs> um, you get used to it. So. Um, <clears throat> Uh, we do that with the opposite. Lunch. You're sitting here meditating. What's the time? Meditating. What's the time? And then the lunch bell goes. Great lunch. And the sense of it's going to be fantastic. Lunch is going to be fantastic. It's going to be really, really wonderful. <laughs> and if if I'm up for it, and I actually go to the lunch hall and I take my lunch and I sit there and I take it as a meditation and I bring all the mindfulness I can muster to the experience of eating, what do I notice? Here's the food in my mouth. Chomp, 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 chomp. Taste. Wow. Maybe very pleasant. Chomp, 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 chomp. A bit more taste. Maybe actually quite neutral. Chomp, chomp, chomp. Pleasant. Chomp, chomp, chomp. Maybe a taste I don't like so much. Chomp, 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 etc. That's even if I'm mindful. <laughs> what do we do? We join the dots. And then something either look, seems terrible or fantastic. And we've given, by joining that, we've given something the solidity, the substantiality that it doesn't have. But we do that, uh, what we want is 
the mindfulness begins to expose the solidity as a fabrication. It's a fabrication of the mind to an extent. I'm saying mindfulness is, is just a start with emptiness, but it's a very, very, very important start. When we can say, what's actually there in my experience when I do that? A lot less is there, either to be afraid of, to dread, or to feel so wonderfully fantastic about lunch or whatever it is. What's actually there? That happens also with inner experience, with emotions. Again, can feel like fear or anger or sadness or whatever it is. It's so solid. And when I look, or pain, so solid. When I look, it has gaps in it. It has gaps in it, and we join the dots. So this third one actually needs, it needs willingness. It needs a willingness to pay close attention to the things that uh, I'm suffering over or the things that I'm craving, or the things that I'm rejecting. I actually need to really scrutinize that thing with mindfulness, whether I'm craving it or rejecting it. It needs that willingness. If I believe unquestioningly its solidity, I will suffer. Even if it's something I like, eventually I will suffer. Okay, so these are things to do. You can, as I said, we're focusing on samadhi, but these are things to do if you want. Bring them in over the days, on the cushion, off the cushion. If you've been around uh, or read teachings about emptiness uh, before, you may well have come across people saying, to say something's emptiness, empty means to say it's a dependent arising. You, you come across this a lot. Emptiness is the same as dependent arising, and John and I will also be saying that. But it's not quite as simple as it seems, let's say. So often you hear that this thing is empty, because it's dependent on causes and conditions. Okay, so this microphone, this uh, bowl, this um, Buddha statue is empty because it depends on causes and conditions. Now certainly the Buddha statue depends on causes and conditions. Someone, by the looks of it, probably in Thailand, uh, molded it, etc. It was a lot of stuff, you know, took that person to get fed, it took whatever it's made from, I don't know what it's made from, the materials that it's made from, they had to be mined by the looks of it, uh, etc. So it's dependent on causes and conditions. All these factors have to come together. And you can trace all these factors, and actually a lot, a lot of causes and conditions had to come together. Now, I have no idea how much is that's worth or how unique it is as a Buddha statue. It might be just a factory assembly one. They might just churn out a whole bunch. But let's say it was completely unique. I might say, well, yeah, but the gold that it's made from is from a specific mine in, uh, in this very remote province of Thailand. It's actually very difficult to get to this mine because it's very dangerous because there's... Um, I don't know, tigers around and da 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 da, da. And, and uh, the craftsman was from a lineage that descended many generations, so there's a lot of causes and conditions there, etc., etc., etc. None of that, all of that, if that's the case, is actually only going to increase my attachment to it. So saying something is dependent on causes and conditions is not enough to say for the fullness of emptiness. It's not enough. Do you see? Uh, We'll come back to this. I don't have time to go into this fully. What's actually quite important is dependency, but dependency on the mind. 
dependency on the mind. So the examples I gave before in the ways of working were all ways we could see the mind is actually doing something here to build, to create, to make things seem a certain way. This is the most important dependency, dependency on the mind. And it's the one, it's the one when we see it, it brings the freedom. And you can say how many times you've been in a group of people and you've all seen a s- same situation differently. Should, I mean, if you uh, come to a, a guy house uh, meeting and see, <laughs> you'll see the same situation, see it completely differently. Then we're all in the same room together. And the same thing happened. Uh, if we take this chair again, wooden chair, how, a hu- how we as you know, Western humans see it, how does a termite see it? It's lunch, it's dinner. How does, uh, I have no idea, but how would a cow see it? A cow probably sees it quite differently from either we as Westerners or, or, or uh, a termite. How would a spider see it? Very different perception to a spider. How would someone, if they still exist, from another human culture who'd never seen a chair before, they don't have chairs like that, what would they make of it? So we say, in another sort of technical phrase, things are imputed by the mind. Imputed by the mind. So imagine, for a moment, a piece of wood or something that's slanted like this, okay, and it's sort of 20 feet outside the window and coming slowly this way, magically. And another piece of wood slanted this way, 20 feet outside of that window, coming slowly this way, and another piece of wood that's... uh, horizontal, uh, 20 feet that way, coming slowly in. And they're slowly, slowly, very slowly coming together. What do we make of that? Strange. At a certain point, the mind goes, oh, it's an A. It's a capital A. At what point does it say that? We begin to see that it's, it's the mind that, and we'd all, we'd all maybe say it differently at different times, it's the mind that's giving something its reality at a certain point. And you, get, you begin to get a sense of, of that it's actually, it's, its thingness rests in the mind. Because I could see that it's an A before they actually join. To make an A, someone else might not see it as an A yet. It's the mind that's giving it that thing, that thingness. Or sometimes I say, if, you, we, take, if we take this chair again, we throw it in a bonfire. And it starts very slowly to disintegrate. When does it become not a chair? Exactly when is it no longer a chair? Again, the mind is going to call it at different times. It's dependent on the mind. Or if you're reading someone's handwriting, begin to see that, I can see that's an A or a C or whatever it is, dependent on the letters around it and, and, and the words around it, the context. Let's take an emotion again. Um, well, let's take two things. Let's take the emotion, an emotion and a body. Let's take an emotion. If I have an emotion of, let's say, let's say, fear or sadness or whatever, and let's say I had the ability to pluck out certain moments of the experience in the stream of the experience of sadness, 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 or fear, 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 or whatever it is. And I could pluck out selective moments of that. And I'd pluck out one, and I'd pluck out another. How many would I have to pluck out till I stop feeling it as sadness? It's 
completely arbitrary. It's like who's you know? It's the mind that calls the shots. It's the mind that gives the thingness to things. If if um, uh, if I chop my arm off, you still look at me and you say, "There's still a body there." I chop the other arm off. There's still a body there. I chop a leg off. Still a body there. You probably say, "Chop the other leg off." There's just <laughs> you probably say, "Okay, all right." <laughs> yes, quite. You still say, all right, but there's still a body there. Start chopping more off. <laughs> Chop the head off. Maybe it's all right, there's still... At some point, again, the mind is going to call the shots. The thingness, the definition of a thing, is given by the mind. It, we say it's imputed by the mind. So there's a, a sutta, it's called the Questions at Upali Sutra. Uh, the things of the world are posited through the power of conceptuality. Through the power of conceptuality, the world is imputed. There was a very famous example, again, this is years ago, some of you who have been meditating a long, long time might have heard it before, but um, uh, uh, it's interesting here, because there's a, a constellation, a stellar constellation, that in America uh, they call the Big Dipper, and in England they call the Plough, or the Great Plough, or... Plow, yeah. plow, plow, yeah. Um, I've no idea how they got a plow out of that. I mean, that really is joining the dots. But um, a Big Dipper, I can see. If you look at it, it looks like a kind of saucepan. Do you, yeah. Does everyone know the constellation I'm talking about? Yeah. yeah. So uh, this example is: Can you look at the Big Dipper without seeing a Big Dipper? Can you look at a Big Dipper and you get a sense that the mind is actually giving it? And actually, if you really try, you can actually look at it and not see a Big Dipper sometimes. And then the mind, it's a bit like those Escher paintings. You can flip in and out of seeing something. You begin to get the sense the mind is giving it the big, the big dipperness thing. However, and that's great, and that's that's really important to see. Then we say its big dipperness is empty of big dipperness. Big dripper chewed. Uh, anyway, uh, we're going to go much further, much much further. Not only is there no big dipper really. There are no stars, really. There is no awareness that sees the stars, really. There is no space, really. There is no moment in which I see the things, really. I'm starting very simple, and we're going to go very, very deep with this. But that's what the teachings of emptiness are actually pointing to. And starting simple, starting every day, and actually it goes all that way. And there's layers in. We work up to that. We're going to work up to it slowly. Uh, and for me, it seems like, for many people, one of the best ways to say is going actually via the suffering and via, via what, what actually helps in relationship to this dissatisfaction that I feel right now. With all that, and I say there's no space and there's no awareness, etc., etc., et we're still respecting the functionality of conventional reality. We still have respect for the functionality of conventional reality. So it's like when I was talking about relationship. Of course there's still a relationship. Of course I'm committed and monogamous and all that stuff. But actually seeing it's empty. It functions, it has a conventional existence, and it's empty. When I see its emptiness, the suffering goes out of something. It still functions, and it still has a conventional existence, but the suffering goes out. And that, as practitioners, is what we're interested in. So there's a middle way here between existence and non-existence. Uh, there's a 
famous text called uh, Ratnavali, uh, again by Nagarjuna, attributed to Nagarjuna. He says, It is confused to apprehend this mirage-like world as either existent or non-existent. If confused, one will not obtain liberation. Middle way, since Nagarjuna called the teaching of emptiness, middle way teaching, middle way between existence and non-existence. We're going to come back to this, um, but it's, it's very important. The suffering, the greed, the aversion, what we call the kilesas in, 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 in Pali, uh, depend on conceiving inherent existence. And again, I'm not sure how obvious that is. It might not be obvious yet, and that's fine. But they actually turn out that our suffering and the presence of greed and aversion depend on conceiving inherent existence in things. In other words, they depend on the thing and the situation seeming to really independently be that way. When we begin to see it's actually dependent on the way of seeing, the way of perceiving, the way of looking at with the mind, uh, we can let go. We let go. We see it's not actually really that way. And with that, the greed and the aversion in relationship to that thing also uh, go away. They don't arise. Aryadeva was uh, Nagarjuna's direct student. All afflictive emotions, all afflictive emotions, all painful emotions are overcome through overcoming ignorance, overcoming delusion. When dependent arising is seen, remember that means the same as emptiness, when dependent arising is seen, ignorance does not arise. You could say ignorance is not generated. Insight into the selfless nature of phenomena destroys the seeds of samsara. So, <clears throat> of course we can hear something like that, but we need to practice it. It's a practice. We need to practice this over and over and, and really see it. So when we say things like this, it's not that we want uh, you or you want, hopefully, to have the right intellectual position and be on the right kind of team. Um, mm. It's not that just someone says something, you go, aha, or that's interesting, mm, that's very interesting. Mm. Uh, it's not that, it's, it's that this is heading to liberation, this is heading in the direction of liberation, it brings liberation to some degree or other. We talk about, the Buddha talks about Nibbana, it comes from ethics and samadhi, as we talked about this morning. It comes <coughs> from training in realizing the emptiness of things, to whatever degree, in different degrees. To realize, in other words, that nothing has its own self-nature. Training in realizing that, and the operative word is training. And then, thirdly, through getting used to that realization, or those realizations, getting used, habituating the mind to that seeing. And that takes time. I mean, there are stories of people getting like that. I've, even the people that talk about so you can get it like that say, uh, basically, it takes time. It's extremely, extremely rare. You're talking about maybe one person in a millennium. Uh, it takes time. Uh, and even uh, someone who has realized very deeply, directly, the emptiness of all things, there's still refinement, there's still deepening of that understanding. Even what we call a stream enter, someone who's actually cut very deep, there's still a refining and understanding to, to have. We have an inborn habit. This is what the Buddha was talking about, delusion. is an inborn habit. We are born with a habit of delusion, of seeing self-existence in things. 
It's an inborn habit. Okay, so it's quite a, a quite a project to overturn that. <clears throat> There's a sutra called the Samadhi Raja Sutra. It means the 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 king of samadhis or something like that. Samadhi Raja Sutra. If the selflessness of phenomena is analyzed, remember that word selflessness is just another word for emptiness. If the emptiness of phenomena is analyzed, and if this anal- analysis is cultivated in meditation, it causes the effect of attaining nirvana. Through no other cause does one come to peace. It's quite a strong statement. It's like, basically, this is what needs to be done. This is what needs to be done. Um, so that's quite interesting. That I find that a very interesting statement. It's actually quite a famous quote. What it's also is in being implied there, that it's not just enough to kind of withdraw the mind from contact with objects in some kind of space inside where not much is happening. That's not enough. It's not going to do it. Uh, whether that's samadhi or whatever. If that were the case, then I could just fall asleep and, and falling you know, into deep sleep would do it, or going into a coma, or anesthetic, or something. That would be the way for liberation. Tsongkhapa is uh, one of the great Tibetan teachers from the 14th and 15th centuries. Um, One should draw the distinction between the non-engagement of the mind with the two selves, the self of personal self and phenomena, Draw the distinction between the non-engagement of the mind with the two selves and the engagement of the mind with the two selflessnesses. That might be a little difficult to understand. Does that? Should I explain that, or does that make sense? Explain. What he's saying, he's just saying what I just said in different ways. He's saying there's something about you can find ways to falling asleep, going into a coma, uh, going under anesthetic, or some, I don't know, weird drug or something, or uh, some states of samadhi, where you're actually not engaging with the self. I was saying this morning, there's not much self around. There's not even much world around. There's just not much happening. So it's a whole lot of nothing. Uh, and uh, that's quite lovely. Or one gets used to it, but after a while, you realize it's quite lovely. That's a non-engagement with the personal self and the selves of things. And draw the distinction between that and actually actively engaging and contemplating the emptiness, the selflessness of this self and other selves. And in other words, actively cutting through rather than just not being present with selves. Um, Begin to go into this and a practitioner begins to really get a feeling for this and and really the heart gets very very involved in a very beautiful way it begins to be that the seeing emptiness the seeing of emptiness begins almost to have its own momentum what at first seemed so strange such a strange way of looking at things such an effort to look at things that way may still be a bit of effort but it, it begins to have a momentum it's like the mind keeps finding its way back to seeing emptiness and wanting to see the emptiness of things the whole thing has its own momentum, and conviction builds. What at first, and again, I don't know how this sounds, what, what I've said tonight, and hopefully it actually does make sense. And um, m- Maybe some of it sounds far-fetched, I don't know. But the conviction begins to build, and it builds and builds, based on our experience. 
And through practice, when we hear, and you might hear me or John or someone else, or you read, someone says, this thing or that thing is a dependent arising. It's dependently originated, and it sounds like, sounds like an intellectual mouthful. But it begins to have resonances that are more and more profound, more and more radical. We begin to get a sense of the radicality of what's being said when we say this or that is a dependent arising. Slowly, with practice, begin to get a sense of the beauty of what that's pointing to. Some, some immense beauty in that. Uh, it really begins to touch the heart, what that means, that intellectual sounding mouthful to say that this or that is a dependent arising. So the heart is really, really touched by that. And it begins to be more and more freeing the more we see that. So I'm going to say, and only in, in, in line with the tradition, uh, to see emptiness and dependent arising things, actually the most significant, uh, or that things are empty, and dependent arising. It's actually the most significant fact of our existence. It's the most significant fact. And again, it takes a lot of insight to even realize that it's the most significant fact. You know, people debate about this or that, and is this or that real, and is there a God, and all kinds of stuff. But the most significant fact that is that if there is a God, he, she, it, is actually empty of inherent existence. That actually turns out to be the, the most significant, profoundly significant fact of, of all of our existence. And there's levels of, say, of understanding this. Someone said, I can't remember who it was, um, it might be actually be in, a, in some text somewhere, that there are levels here. And the quote is, if you don't, if your mouth is not hanging open when uh, you hear about dependent arising, you haven't quite understood it. <laughs> there's a, a radical... We're going to go into this. We haven't got into it tonight, but we're going to... There's a complete, as I said last night, mind-boggling, counterintuitive, profound radicality here that is totally and utterly awesome. Absolutely awesome. So for me, it's a razor's edge. Uh, it's a razor's edge, existence, non-existence. What does it mean to say something's dependent arising, lacking inherent existence? We're, we're, we're walking, in a way, a tightrope, a razor's edge here. If my contemplation of emptiness and my practice on emptiness, etc., if they're leading, if I look at myself in my life and I find that actually less compassion in my life, uh, less love, less care for ethics, less generosity... Something is off, something is very off and out of balance in my contemplation of emptiness. Because the opposite should be true. More compassion, more love, more care about how we are with each other, and more generosity. And it's, you, it's probably gone to lean over into nihilism if the first was the case. So from the Yukti Shastika again. One does not achieve liberation through reification, through making things real and things, real things. Nor does one free oneself from samsara through nihilism. By thoroughly understanding existence and non-existence, the great beings obtain liberation. So not nihilism, not nihilism. What we're seeing is that things depend on the mind, and in this retreat, we want to see exactly how they depend on the mind. Really go deep into that question of how things depend on the mind, the fullness of what that means. 
it also turns out that the mind or awareness is also dependent too it's also dependent it's not like you've got something that is real building other things or whatever or something that's exempt from this being built mind too awareness too is empty of inherent existence that's one of the places where this is extremely radical how can that be and what does it mean and finish with Nagarjuna again I actually said it before anything that arises in interdependence anything that is a dependent arising is also peace in its very essence it's peace in its very essence there's something here that's so beautiful it touches the heart so deeply when we begin to get an understanding of this it's not, we're not just um, uh, being intellectual here at all. At all. Something uh, begins to be more and more moving to the heart. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.